You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Robert A. Cook presented from the Book of Philippians at Founders Week 1982. Robert A. Cook was a Moody Bible Institute graduate, president of King's College in New York, and radio host of Walk with the King. Now, here is Robert A. Cook on Today in the Word radio. Thank you very much. Nice to be back here at the Moody Bible Institute. After all of that recital of, of the uh, data about yours truly, I'm just so glad that my friends and relatives are listening in so they can see what a great man I am. <laughs> For those of you who uh, fellowship with us regularly by way of radio, I suppose I ought to use the time-honored greeting, and I will. How in the world are you? <clears throat> that will... Uh, that will, oh, I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> nice of you to ask. That will get us started. This week, I want to work in the book of Philippians with you, not by way of uh, official exposition of the text so much as by way of pointing out certain practical implications there are in each of the chapters. What does it mean that Christ is my life? That's today. <clears throat> what does the Lordship of Christ mean by way of practical application? That's tomorrow. What does it mean that Christ is my goal? And what does it mean that Christ is the supply, the answer, in other words, to all of my need? That would be for Friday morning. You pray for me because a sermon is either a miracle or a fraud. There isn't any in between. And so let's believe God for a miracle outpouring of His Holy Spirit in these morning hours so that uh, every one of our hearts may be blessed and all of us may know that God has said something to us individually. I ought to stop here and thank God for the heritage that is mine this first morning might be as good a time as any to remind you that the Moody Bible Institute is unique in preparing young men and women for God's work in a very special way. For me, coming straight out of high school, it's true. I had just passed my 16th birthday when I came to the Moody Bible Institute. The faculty had to have a special meeting and pass a law that I could get in because I was so far underage. I think you had to be the ripe old age of 18 to be admitted in those days. So I was two years underage. They had a special meeting and decided they'd risk it. I think they had some regrets later on, but then. <laughs> My sister, Mildred Cook, who had uh, graduated from uh, the Moody Bible Institute in 1924, was the uh, class speaker and uh, appreciated then and through the years, as I do, the privilege of attending, had suggested gently that maybe I might uh, do well to come to Moody. I had already enrolled in a technical school because I wanted to be in mechanical work. I wanted to be a car dealer. That was my goal at that time. My father said to me, well, my boy, he always called me boy. He never could remember my name. He said, boy, <clears throat> I'll give you a year at Moody. You'll be better at anything else you do if you get some Bible in your heart and mind. And so I figured, well, how can I lose? And so there I began in 1928. 
And uh, those years gave that special approach that the Institute is known for. For me, at least, it meant find out what the Bible says. Dr. Gray used to say to his students, find out what the Bible says and master that. You'll have very little difficulty with what it means if you find out what it says. And so the content of the Bible and proclaiming the Word of God became a part of the very stuff of life for me. The second thing that was emphasized throughout those years was the importance of leading men and women to Jesus Christ. The chief task of the Church is still the evangelization of the world, and we were never allowed then to forget it, nor, I presume, do we forget it today in this great place, the West Point of Christian service. Thank God for the Moody Bible Institute. Amen? Amen. Well, these have been good years, and of course, I'm still so young. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? <laughs> Wonderful. So enough now of nostalgia, and uh, let's look, if you will, please, at Philippians chapter 1. For our purposes, the key verse is Philippians 1.21. Quote it with me together. Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Try it again. Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so we come to the conclusion that Christ is our very life. He becomes your life the moment you accept His grace and experience His peace, as Paul says in his benediction in verse 2. And the meaning of that is that he becomes the stuff of which living is made. Now, many a Christian worker has yet to learn this. The amount of burnout that is evident in Christian workers today is tragic indication, it seems to me, that many have never learned that Christ is the very stuff of living. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Wisdom is, is knowing what to do with what you know. Righteousness is the demonstration of God's character and life through you. Sanctification is being set apart for God's special use. And redemption is the process which begins uh, with the purpose of God and ends in His eternal glory when you and I are exhibit A yonder, showing the mercy and the grace of God. Christ is the stuff of living, and you can look heavenward any given moment and say, Lord Jesus, be my wisdom. He gives you that word of wisdom. You can look heavenward and whisper a prayer under pressure, pressure of testing or temptation or trial or heartbreak, and you're threatening at that moment humanly to fly to pieces, as we say, either to give up or to cave in or to blow up. And you say, Lord, be my righteousness. And he keeps you under control with the touch of his pierced hand. In the secular world where secularization we call it acculturation in academia. That, that simply is a highbrow word for backsliding. But uh, uh, where secularization and acculturation is uh, so common and the creeping influence of godlessness is everywhere and you sense it sometimes, you can look heavenward and say, Lord Jesus, be my sanctification. Keep me specially set apart for you to use. Redemption, 
Well, that began at the cross and in the purpose of God, and it continues as he molds and shapes your life Christward and heavenward as the days go by until that day when we see him face to face and we're made like him, for we shall see him as he is. Christ is your life when you trust him and commit yourself to him. Someone listening this morning may yet have to do that. You may be religious, but never have committed yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, do it now. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the Bible says. So you call upon him, he'll answer you. If we can assume that you've made that commitment, then what? Well, you look, as Dr. Fitzwater used to say, let your eye fall on the text. We students never knew which eye to use. But uh, the first practical result of Christ being your life is that you get a deep concern and a wholesome confidence about other people. He said, I thank my God on every remembrance of you, thankfulness, always with every prayer of mine for you, making requests with joy, joyful praying, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, sharing the person and work of Christ, fellowship, koinonia, sharing, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Confidence in God's work in other people. It's right for me to think this of you because I have you in my heart. Involvement with other people. Uh, he says, I long after you in the compassions of Jesus Christ, and I'm praying that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and judgment and excellence and, and interpersonal skills and sincerity being filled with the fruits of righteousness involvement with other people. Let's stop just for a moment and walk around in those concepts before we go farther. One of the hallmarks of unsaved do-gooders is that they intend to do good to people, but underneath they really end up coping with people. Have you noticed that? One of the trademarks of unsaved human nature is that we get along with people on the basis of coping with them or at least uh, appreciating them if they'll do us a favor. You scratch my back and I shall scratch yours, is the old saying. But really to appreciate and love people is possible only when you've had an experience of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Back in the, in the hippie generation, now some of you are too young to have remembered that, but others of you can. The hippies, you remember them? The generation of the long-haired, unwashed? Well, uh, of course, that wasn't original. I had a roommate uh, in one school, which shall be nameless, and we called him Bathless because he, <laughs> he refused to, to uh, perform his ablutions. We fixed him, though. We, uh, we, we helped him. <laughs> but uh, the hippie generation, we're talking about love. But you disagree with them, and you would find them most unloving. Strange, wasn't it? You agree with them, especially, and give them money. That helps. But disagree with them and, tell them and point out some of the fallacies of their thinking, and you would find them most unloving. And uh, just, just strange how the word love got lost after a while. Why? Well, because human nature 
basically, Paul says in, in Titus 3, is hate-filled and hating one another. That's the atmosphere of the world around us. That's why people get into wars and fights and divorces and all the rest of it. If your heart has never been exposed to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, you still resent people who get in your way. Now one of the marks then of, of Christ being my life is that I get a new concern and love and compassion and appreciation for people. Paul says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given unto us. Now how does that start? Well, I've had to deal with this. And well, I'll tell you a story that'll illustrate it. On one occasion, I've served numbers of churches, so it's really none of anybody's business which church this was. But on one occasion, I was distressed about one brother in my church who was, well, he really was an accident going somewhere to happen, is what he was, you know. Uh, he, would come, he would come to Sunday school on Sunday morning and say in the, in the Sunday school class, well, fellas, I certainly have been faithful to the Lord this week, and I've been so blessed, and he'd tell what happened to you. And he said, if you had been faithful to the Lord, you would have been blessed too. You know, that made everybody happy right off the bat. He was sort of born in the accusative case, you may say. And uh, he bothered me. Well, I believe in praying. I tell God on people, you know. So I thought, I'm going to pray this guy right out of my church. And I made, I did, I made a date with God to pray that man out. And I got into my office and got down on my knees and I began to tell God about it and I just really asked the Lord to, to promote him to greener pastures somewhere. <laughs> well, you can guess what's coming. I got absolutely nowhere in my praying. No blessing, no heavenly dew, no flowing of, of divinely given tears, no warming of my heart, nothing. It was as cold as the inside of McDonald's deep freeze. It was... It wasn't getting anywhere. So I thought, well, maybe I better pray for him. Maybe that'll help. So I began to pray for the brother. And as I did, God began to reveal to me the depth of my own resentment. You know, resentment is hatred with a tuxedo on. And uh, so the depth of the feelings that were in my heart, and I began to confess them as well. And I prayed for the brother and then prayed for myself. And then I, I prayed for the brother's wife. I thought maybe she needed help. Sure did. Well, you know, I got along a lot better. I really did. And my own heart was blessed, and, and uh, lunchtime came, and I said amen, went home to lunch, as any good minister should. And uh, that was that. Now, the Lord worked things out. He did. He, my own spirit was better, and so I got along better. That was the first thing. Having been to the cross and repented of my own shortcomings there, uh, God enabled me to get along better with somebody else. And then he took care of the brother as well. He got him out preaching so that he was preaching all the time. And he, and he didn't show up all that often. And he was happy winning souls and still sent his tithe to the church. Hallelujah. You know. <laughs> Christ, my life, makes me love everybody, says the old song. 
makes you love everybody. It isn't enough to cope with people as a problem to be solved. It isn't enough to manipulate people as a means to an objective to be reached. It isn't enough to work with people as the stuff of which a great ministry is made. It's only enough when you love them like Jesus loved them with a heart that reaches out in compassion and concern. That is what it means for Christ to be my life. Now, it's a life of victory over circumstances and critics. Unfortunately, not everybody is going to realize you're as smart as you really are. Not everybody's going to treat you as well as you ought to be treated. Unfortunately, there are people who will reserve the right to criticize you. They say of faculty, this is a, this is a trade joke, but I'll, I'll share it with you. It's used every place in the world where faculty are gathered together. Uh, the definition of a faculty member is one who thinks otherwise. You know, they've been trained to think of all the different sides of the question, and so they, they, they walk around it and, and see all of the different, uh, the different possibilities. That's part of our training, to be a faculty member. But I want to tell you something. It isn't limited, ladies and gentlemen, to people in academia. It isn't limited to the person who has the earned PhD. Human nature being what it is, you'll find people who don't see things your way. And you may be a threat to them psychologically or socially, and they may oppose you, even though you feel you're doing a, a great work. What are you going to do about your competition and your critics? Well, if Christ is your life, he gives you complete victory and peace as you look at this matter of circumstances and competition and your critics. The key to what Paul says here is found in two statements, in verse 12 and in verse 18. He said, I would you should understand that the things which have happened unto me, now what had happened to him? He'd been captured, he'd been indicted, he was in chains, he was in prison. That's what had happened to him. He was in shackles, my bonds in Christ, he's talking about. He had a Roman soldier handcuffed to him on each side. Each of his two arms was handcuffed to a Roman soldier. So there was no comfort, no privacy, no nothing except being a prisoner. There he was. The things which have happened to me, now said he, have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. I suppose had I been there in prison, I would have been saying, Lord, what are you trying to do to me? Here I've been working my head to the bone, trying somehow, you know. <laughs> trying somehow to get the gospel out. And here you got me in jail, and I'm handcuffed to these two animals, these Roman soldiers. They don't believe in anything that I believe in and all of that, and so on. I, I probably would have been complaining, and so I think may some of you, some of you a little more saintly, or else you have arthritis. I can't tell which from here looking at you. But many of us would have been complaining. He said, my bonds in Christ have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. Now the other key verse is verse 18. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, for I know this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What about critics? What about competition? And what about circumstances that go awry? 
And what about the times when you're in, in, in situations of even physical, let alone emotional and mental anguish? What then? It all depends on what you want to get done, ladies and gentlemen. Remember this, if you're working for how you feel, life will be a series of disappointments. If you are working to see the gospel preached, life can be a series of victories. You take your choice. He says, the furtherance of the gospel. This shall turn to my salvation. The Christ is preached and I'm going to rejoice. What had happened? There were people who, now that Paul was in jail, said, this is our chance to get a little limelight. He can't get out. We'll do the preaching. Aren't you glad that never happens now? Well, yes, it does, I'm afraid. Human nature being what it is, people say, oh, this is my chance now to get a little limelight, a little sunshine, a little notoriety. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to show them now. Paul said, that's all right. <laughs> Let him preach. Christ is being preached, whether of envy and strife or in sincerity and truth. It's all right with me because God is still God. God's in charge here, and the gospel's being preached. Isn't that beautiful? Complete victory over circumstances and critics and competition. Why? Because you've settled your objective. Today, students, in your salad days, while you're still in school, settle in your own heart what it is you really want. If your objective is to get the biggest church this side of Jack MacArthur's congregation uh, in California, if your objective is to get the, the finest relationship with the district superintendent so that you'll be promoted and recommended for a different charge, if your objective is to be known as the finest writer of devotional books or whatever, or to be the finest singer and recording artist, well, all right. But if you somehow, as you wait before God in these days, classes, I understand, are suspended during this week. You have a chance of attending up to three sessions or more a day. You can soak your soul in the truth that's being presented by these uh, stalwart and gifted servants of God who have come here to minister to us. Settle in your own heart what it is you really want. God is still saying, ask what I shall do for thee. God waits for you to say what you want. He waits for you to say what means the most to you. And you'll have perfect peace in the midst of trial and competition and even criticism if your objective is to honor Jesus and preach the gospel. When I was in Chicago a few years back, I was uh, given some responsibility and leadership in Youth for Christ, as Dr. Sweeting mentioned a moment ago. And unfortunately, not all of the people in the greater Chicago area agreed with the methods that we were using at that time. Compared with today, what we were doing then would seem incredibly square and conservative. But at that time, it was a little far out, it seemed. Our, our people who played the organ, for instance, actually used an inverted chord now and again, and uh, a little, uh, a little uh, extra lace work on the, on the musical filigree that they put on an arrangement. And that, of course, was considered quite carnal. But uh, in any case, not everybody, not everybody agreed with what we were trying to do. And so I would now and again get a, get a hot letter, generally anonymous, uh, or signed, Your Friend in Christ, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know it would hurt me because I'm such a nice guy, but 
I remember one day going to see Dr. H.A. Ironside, who at that time was pastor of the Moody Memorial Church just to the north of us here on LaSalle Street. He was my friend. He befriended me when it really wasn't advantageous to do so. I'll guarantee you that. But he was my friend. And so I went to see him. I said, Doc, I got to talk to you. Well, he sat back in his, in his uh, office chair there and folded his hands on top of his capacious middle, uh, just, just above the big gold watch chain that folded itself across his vest there. I never saw him look at his watch. Preachers, of course, never do. But uh, he had the watch chain anyway. And he sat back and listened to me, and I told him my tale of woe. People were criticizing me. They didn't realize how hard I was working. They didn't realize how we were trying to win young people to Christ and channel them back into the Bible-preaching church of their choice so we could help the local church in the long run. They just didn't realize. They were criticizing us. And so when I paused for breath, he looked at me and he said, some of you old-timers can remember the tone of his voice. It was a combination of honey and gravel. You remember? It was, it was tender and had a little, a little edge on it. And he said to me with that famous voice and a smile showing all of his gold teeth, he said, well, young man, he said, if what they're saying about you is true, mend your ways. But if it isn't true, forget it and go on and serve God. Now, that was good advice, wasn't it? perfect peace in the face of critics and competition. If you have settled your objective and you know what you're trying to do and you are not aware of disobeying God in any way, go on, forget the critic, and rejoice that Christ is being preached. Good idea. Christ, your life, makes you victor over circumstances and criticism. What else? Well, there's a perfect balance between the here and now and the by and by. Of course, you always find the extreme. There are some people who are so concerned with what's going on now that they forget uh, that uh, the Bible has some excellent prophetical truth and tells us what God is going to do in the future. Then there are others who, like one of the deacons in a church I ministered to a good many years ago on a one-night stand Bible conference basis, he came to me and he said, Now, young man, he said, We're all saved here and we don't need sanctifying, so I wish you'd preach a sermon on prophecy. Well, I told him I'd probably ask the Lord what to say and try to obey God. And, uh, and he went away, and, uh, and I preached that night on uh, what the Bible teaches about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we had a good time. But, you know, there are people who are more interested in one side of it than another. If Christ is your life, he sees to it that you get a perfect balance between the here and now and the by and by. Now look at this. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. That's the here and now. But that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. That's here and now, whether it be by life, here and now, or by death. And that is still part of the now. He says, I want the Lord Jesus Christ to be honored and magnified in everything that I do. The only way, small detour here. The only way that you can avoid being ashamed of yourself is to honor Jesus every step of the way. Why do people get ashamed? Number one, consciousness of guilt. Number two, consciousness of inferiority. And number three, consciousness of having failed to meet an objective. Now, the idea of, of guilt is, is plain enough. If you've got something on your conscience between you and God, let the Lord Jesus cleanse it with his precious blood, repent of it, turn away from it, and go on cleansed and, and, and restored. You're not ashamed anymore. 
Number two, consciousness of being inferior. Settle this in your own mind, that be you ever so beautiful or ever so gifted or ever so smart, there will always come along someone who is better than you. I tell our young people at the King's College, you may be Miss America today, but give you 50 years, you'll have a face like a prune. And you, you <laughs> and uh, you like that, all right. You're a good crowd. The same thing is, is true of, of, of anything else by way of human boasting or achievement. You think you're so smart, Somebody else is going to come along who knows a good deal more and he'll convince the boss that he does and you'll be bypassed and he'll be promoted. It happens every day. If that is what you're living for, you're in for a lot of heartache, friend. You remember the, the man who came to the, the psychiatrist and said, I have an inferiority complex? And the psychiatrist uh, examined him. He says, don't worry, friend. You don't have a complex. You're just inferior. <laughs> Now settle the fact that you're not as smart as somebody else. You know, just settle that. The only way to avoid being ashamed is to, is to brag on Jesus, isn't it? That in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness Christ shall be magnified. And then the third source of being ashamed is failing to reach your objective. You tried your hardest, ran your fastest, studied your best, and you failed to reach the, the objective. Well then, what then? You quit? You curl up and die? No, you keep on. Because your, your main objective is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no failures, ladies and gentlemen, when you're in the will of God. you believe that? There are no failures when you're in the will of God. All right, that's the end of the detour. It cost me a few minutes, but maybe it was worth it. A perfect balance between here and now and by and by. Magnify the Lord Jesus. Now, he says, uh, really, I would rather and go be with Christ. I'm a straight betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, as to keep on living now, is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and your joy of faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus for me. Now he said, I, I'd rather go be with Jesus because that's better. That's the by and by. Is it better to be in the presence of Christ or to be living in this old world? From all that we know from the Word of God, it's far, far better to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why a Christian has no fear of physical death. You don't have to be afraid of physical death. Why? Because it's a promotion day. D.L. Moody, when he lay dying, said, this is my coronation day. Why, of course, it's better. But you don't dwell on that. You don't go around, uh, you know, checking your pulse and finding out whether you're apt to check out. No, what you do is, in the light of eternity, you say, I want to do what people need. We're back to the people theme again. He said, this is more needful for you, for your growth, for your peace, for your joy, for the answer to your prayers. That, said he, is what I'm living for. That's why I want to keep on living. A good balance between here and now and by and by. Why? Because Christ is your life and you want to share him with people than a life that gladly faces and pays the cost of sacrifice. He said, in nothing terrified by your adversaries, to them an evident token of perdition, but to you a token of salvation and that of God. 
For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, the word suffering is not defined as to what it means because every person's life is different. There's physical suffering, there's emotional suffering, there's suffering that has to do with the perfidy of other human beings close enough to you to break your heart. There's suffering that has to do with the harassment of a, of a godless world around you. There's suffering that has to do with a job situation where you, as a Christian you're passed by repeatedly when it comes merit rating time because people say you're too religious. Although you're doing your work well and you're not a religious fanatic, they know that you don't go out and carouse with the rest of the crowd and so they pass you by. It happens in corporate work day after day. Suffering is of different kinds. The question is, are you willing gladly to pay the price of suffering mentioned here because God has made you an extension of the hand with the hole in it? The nail-pierced hand, he said, it, unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ. And the only way some people will ever know that you have had a meeting with Jesus is to see the evidence of his cross in your life. Amy Carmichael writes a poem which I cannot quote for you today, but she says, I hear your name spread as great in the land. I hear you praised, and I hear your star is rising fast. But, she says in her poem, when I look at you and I hear about the, your stars, I have to ask, where are the scars? S-C-A-R. Where are the scars? For he had scars in hand and feet and side. Where are your scars if you say you're following the crucified? The only way some people will ever believe that Jesus is real, ladies and gentlemen, is to see that he is real as they observe you when you're under pressure. Now that pressure may take many different kinds of, of, of forms. We know that. For John and Betty Stamm, who were in the Institute when I was a student here, as they went out to China, it meant for them kneeling on a uh, hillside outside of town and being beheaded on that dark day when their lives were given for the Lord Jesus Christ. For a young man of whom Bob Pierce told uh, during his ministry in Korea, some years ago this young man had been the head personal worker, the head counselor. Came the communist invasion, the young man was captured and subjected to trial by a loudspeaker. And they were saying, confess, confess that you're a capitalistic spy. Confess that you're in the employ of America and so on. And he saw out in the audience the eyes of people with whom he had prayed for salvation. People looking at him wondering what he would do. He held up his hand for silence. The crowd quieted down. The cold muzzle of a 45 automatic was still pressed against the base of his skull in true communist fashion. And he said, you want me to confess? Then I will confess. I confess that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no other way for salvation but through him. And at that point, the commanding officer pointed to the uh, soldier who held the 45. The trigger was pulled and that lead slug went through the uh, uh, brain of the young man. He slumped to the platform of the, of the little uh, uh, setup that they had there, dead. But his spirit had gone to be with the Lord Jesus. Now, you and I are not being shot at sunrise today, but there are other things that face us 
And the world, I have to tell you, will, will, will determine in their thinking how real Jesus is. You say he's your life? Yes, he is. Well, they'll determine it, many of them, when they look to see how you face the pressures and the heartaches and the suffering and the price of living for God in your day. Christ, my life. Let us pray. Father, in Jesus' name, apply thy word to our hearts by the precious Holy Spirit. We ask for our Savior's sake and in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Robert A. Cook presented from the Book of Philippians at Founders Week in 1982. Robert A. Cook was a Moody Bible Institute graduate, president of King's College in New York, and radio host of Walk with the King. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.